Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. And we got to celebrate some Jesus this morning. Man, our team singing and celebrating the gospel. Thank you uh, for being here at Connect Church as we again, yet another Sunday, uh, do everything we can to make much of Jesus, to connect everyone with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And Sunday mornings are uh, a big part of that. And if you're visiting with us today, uh, man, we especially want to thank you for being here, for giving uh, Connect Church a chance and the opportunity that together uh, we can make much of him. Now, as we start out today, um, how many of you guys, somewhere around the 80s or 90s, or maybe even earlier, have ever had a lunchroom cafeteria lunch in a public school? Can you raise your hand? Let's just all across the room. Good. Man, I'm going to tell you, I got a little nostalgic this past week, and I brought to you today, and I'm bringing to you today, my two favorite lunchroom cafeteria foods and plates, okay? Let's see if this brings something up for you. You ready? Hey, look at this guy right here. You remember that square pizza? How many of y'all remember that square? How many people have eaten a square pizza in the house? Man, and listen, you know it was a really good day when they put those little cubes of meat that you had no idea what they were on the pizza, and you ate them? Man, remember that guy, the chocolate milk? The more you drank from it, the soggier the carton got. I mean, just, man, really good stuff. But my favorite meal, when you really knew it was going to be a good day, is this guy right here. Remember Salisbury steak? You know what? Every time we had Salisbury steak, you know what I thought in my mind? Can't hide money, right? I mean, that's just the, man, that's the good stuff. The good stuff. What is that stuff? Have you ever stopped to think what kind of meat they got? Wasn't a lot of cats around the school. Anyway, man, I love Salisbury steak, all that good stuff. You know what I'm waiting on? This is no joke. I'm waiting on the TV commercial that comes on. It says, were you forced to eat a square pizza or Salisbury steak at your public high school? If so, call the law offices of James Sokolov because you have a client. I'm waiting on that to happen. Hey, but I'm going to tell you, there, there is one lunch that, that we were too poor really to afford back in the day that, that you couldn't even buy in the cafeteria that was only brought by the, by the rich kids. And that is, you remember these guys right here, that magic yellow, bo- the, the Lunchables. Man, I still love Lunchables to this day. Man, when you can have gourmet fresh meat, gourmet cheeses, barely stale crackers in a box, and bring that lunch with you to school, man, you're right now, right? This is a good day. And then I think about, man, they even got creative, and now you can build your own pizza, and then there's a, like a super-sized Lunchable box that, that comes with a drink. Man, I love me some Lunchables back in the day. But here's the deal. No matter your... No matter your favorite lunch, no matter what it is, square pizza, Salisbury steak, Lunchables, man, we're going to pack them up to go today. And here's the reason why. Because in our text, we are going on a picnic. The scenery is beautiful. It is, it is shoreside. It is lakeside, the Sea of Galilee. We are overlooking the water. And today, we are going to picnic with Jesus. Now, listen, if you're afraid of crowds, let me forewarn you. A lot of people are going to show up for this picnic in the scriptures today, but don't let it scare you off, and here's why. Because if you're going to stick around, you're going to see that what Jesus does here in John chapter 6 is something pretty 
incredible. So let's begin to go there in the text, and it says this, that, that sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. That's what it's known as, or the Sea of, of Kinnereth in the Old Testament. But I want us to talk a little about after this by asking the question, after what? Well, if you'll remember last week, after the showdown that Jesus had with some uh, religious leaders who were Jews, this showdown that took place after he healed a man, poolside at Bethesda, and began to share truth. And you begin to ask the question, man, what happens to Jesus and what happens to us when we face being canceled like Jesus did last week? Now, where are we going to find Jesus? Is he lawyering up? Is he buying a gun? Is he going into hiding? No. Jesus continues to do what the Father has sent him to do. Jesus continues on in the family business of building the very kingdom of God. After the showdown in chapter 5, Jesus goes to the east side or the far side of the Sea of Galilee. You see, the west side of the Sea of Galilee, man, a lot of people lived there. A lot of people worked there. A lot of people played there. But on the east side, there were not a lot of people there. In fact, I visited there. And to this day, there are still not a lot of people and a lot of things over on that east side, that far side of the Lake of Galilee. So the question becomes, why why is Jesus moving away from the people? Why is he hopping in a boat? And why is he going away from the people? We get insight into these reasons in another gospel, the gospel of Matthew chapter 4, where we begin to learn that Jesus, and alongside of Jesus, that his cousin John, John the Baptist, who we spent so much of our early parts of study in, in the gospel of John, that John, Jesus' forerunner, had been killed by King Herod. He's now dead. Killed for speaking truth to power, and, and the Bible teaches us that Jesus is grieved by this, and so he goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to do two things, to grieve, to mourn. His cousin. But something interesting happens. The Bible teaches us that a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. And so Jesus goes up on the mountainside. He sits down with the disciples, and the Jewish Passover festival is near. We're going to get to that in, in two weeks and why that's important. But here's the deal. Jesus goes to the far side of the sea to be alone, and he is anything but alone. There is going to be little time for Jesus to mourn John. Word was out. Jesus' popularity was exploding. So instead of taking the position of a poor, pitiful me and shun the crowd, Jesus opts instead for a spontaneous picnic with that crowd. Instead of just focusing in on himself, he begins to focus in on the mission that God has set before him. Matthew's gospel uh, gives us some insight into the emotions that, that drove Jesus to have this spontaneous picnic that day. In Matthew 4, when Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, the Bible says. And he healed the sick. Well, later on in the Gospel of Mark, we find in Mark chapter 6, even more insight into the mindset of Jesus, and that is when Jesus landed, he saw this large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them, the Bible says, many things. Well, watch this. Instead of hiding from the crowd... Jesus had compassion on the crowd. 
Although he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to mourn, his mission to save people trumped his need to mourn his cousin. And we begin to see in John's gospel that Jesus focuses on, he focuses in on the needs of the people there that day, those physical needs. Watch this. As he has a conversation with Philip, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said, hey, Philip, man, where can we buy some bread for these people to eat? Where shall we buy it? Where can we find it? Man, practically, this is a really good question. Where Jesus, the disciples, the crowds have gathered on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it is remote. There's a lot of people on the scene. Simply put, no nearby town's food supply could produce enough bread for all this crowd of people to eat. Yeah, I, I, love, I love sometimes when we get to the end of the day, you know what Aaron will say? Hey, Aunt, run by, run by Food City and get some chicken tenders. They, they couldn't do that. All right, there was no Chick-fil-A for Christian chicken, guys. Man, they were out there, and people were, people were hungry. But Jesus poses this question to Philip as a test, as a proving ground, really, for Philip's faith. Thus far in the Gospel of John, Philip has either experienced or heard firsthand of the great Cana changeover where Jesus changed water into wine. He was there when this official son was healed by Jesus for some 20 miles away. He was a witness to a paralyzed man sitting poolside at Bethesda who now walks. Surely, Philip's going to step up to the plate here when Jesus poses this question. Right? He's going to answer Jesus' question with great faith, right? Well, let's listen into the text here. Watch this. Philip answered him. Man, Jesus, you can do it. Hey, Jesus, this looks impossible. You are the God of the impossible. That's not what he said. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for just each person to have a bite. So Philip, instead of considering the supernatural Jesus can do, Philip deals in the practical of what they cannot do. And what they could not do was feed that crowd. Not only did they have enough money to buy the bread, but there wasn't enough bread to even feed the people if they could buy it. And so Andrew chimes in in verse 9. And here's what Andrew says. I, I can imagine him going, hey, hey, look, Jesus, there's this little boy. Man, he's got a couple of small fish. And there's maybe five loaves of barley bread, but... How far will this go among so many? How far will this even go? You see, Andrew, like Philip, deals in the practical. Whereas Philip checked the bank account, Andrew kind of serves as the stock boy, checking the stock to see what they have. In a sense, Andrew is telling Jesus, all we have, you ready, is this little boy's Jewish Lunchable. Some fish and some bread. All we've got is a Jewish lunchable. How far can that thing go? See, Jewish people in the first century, they ate two meals. They had a meal around lunchtime, and they had a meal at dinner. Fish 
and bread, especially around that Sea of Galilee, were common. Barley bread, by its very nature, was common to poor people. And so, man, what we've got painted on the scene there is we've got a little boy who is poor, and all he has is lunch for his family. That's all he's got on him. This little boy probably just had enough for one meal. But even though what this little boy had was, was small, and as Andrew have already seen to it, just simply not enough. It was small and not enough. He gave all he had to Jesus. And so you know what? Let's have our first lunchable lesson here. You ready? Lunchable lesson number one. It doesn't matter how little or how much you have. What matters is how much of it that you're going to give to Jesus. How much are you going to give to Jesus? Little boy gave all he had. And let me ask a question here at the top. Really, how much of your lunch have you given to Jesus? And by lunch, I mean more than just food. How much of your life, your love, your loyalty, your longings. How much of your lunch have you given to Jesus? What we like to do a lot of times in the church is to go, you know what, man, Jesus, I'm going to give you some of my lunch and some of my life and some of my love and my loyalty and my longings, and I'm going to keep the rest to myself. Oh, listen, no matter how little or how much you have, what matters is, is how much of it are you going to give? to Jesus. Hey, consider the scripture. Nowhere in scripture do we see Andrew forcibly taking and stealing the boy's lunch. So I can surmise maybe what happened there that day is that as Jesus is talking with Philip and, and Andrew and the boys about this problem of, man, we got to feed some people. They're hungry. I can imagine this little boy's close to earshot. And he tugs on the, the cloak of Andrew and says, Hey, sir, man, it, it's little, it's not much, it's not going to feed everybody. Hey, but would you take my lunch and give it to Jesus? Would you take what I have and would you just give it to Jesus? I got to thinking about this little boy. I got to thinking it wasn't Andrew the realist. It wasn't... Uh, Philip, the pessimist, who had the greater faith that day, rather a little boy with a Jewish lunchable who had the greatest of all when it came to faith that day. But it does seem small, doesn't it? Not enough. Especially in light of verse 10 where we're going to learn that they're to feed 5,000 men and in that day, man, that's just how you counted people. That meant that there were thousands of more women and children who accompanied them, anywhere between 20 and 25,000 people there before Jesus. And you look down at that Jewish lunchable and you realize it's not enough. It's just too little. And thus the lie of the enemy for ages now, isn't it? Hey, You've heard that lie, hadn't you? What you bring to the table is just too little. It's just not enough. Your faith, it's too little for Jesus. Your faith is, is not enough. Or maybe you've been caught up in this comparison game. 
where all you have are two small fish and five barley loaves, and yet you go to Instagram, and people in their basket, they have filet. They have lobster. Their bread is brioche, man. Nothing like yours, and you can't compare. You're, you're too little. You're not enough. Every time you and I play games like that, I want you to hear me, we lose every time. Because here's the reality of what we know. And when you play this comparison game, what you're usually comparing yourself with is some airbrushed, filtered to death image that is projected to hide the mess of somebody's life. I don't know about you, but man, I know what it is to feel like what you have is too little for God. I've known seasons in my life where I felt like, man, I'm just not enough for him. And that doesn't just carry over with God, but how about into your marriage? As a husband, men, you ever felt like maybe you just, and what you bring to the table is just too little and not enough. Hey, wives, have you ever thought about that with your husband? Parents, how about your kids? Listen, I love my kids, and I, and I, I'm a pretty good dad most of the time. But even as a dad, trying to raise kids that love and follow after Jesus, I mean, there's times when I've played with it, what I'm doing is just too little. And it's not enough. I feel that as a husband, as a father, be honest at times as a pastor, and we get caught up in these comparison games, just as a man, what I bring to the table is just too little. And it's not enough. And when those times come, I begin to, to hum a hymn that I used to hear in church. And if you were at all brought up in the church, you might remember this. The chorus of it is simple in just a few words. You ready? Little is much when what? When God is in it. Little is much when God is in and what we're going to see begin to play out with this little boy and his lunchable is this very truth begin to come to life. Little is much when God is in it. Watch this in verse 10. And Jesus said, hey boys, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. Do you know what I first thought of when I read this? What I first think of? Do you know how itchy people get when they sit on grass? Man, I get so itchy sitting on grass, and now we got thousands of people who are going to sit on grass and get a little itchy. But about 5,000 men were there. Tens of thousands of people likely on that, on that hillside at that picnic. And then Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated. Now watch this. As much as, much as they wanted, There's two of these guys. There's five of these loaves, and yet tens of thousands of people are eating bread, and Jesus teaches us that he also did that with the very fish. As much as they wanted, tens of thousands fed with a Jewish lunchable, impossible, until you remember Little is much, but God is in it. Hey, can I share with you a lunchable lesson number two today? 
And that is this. The little boy's job wasn't to feed thousands of people. His job was giving Jesus his lunch. That was his job that day. Hey, my part and your part in this story is not to feed the world or to save the world. Our job is simply to give Jesus our lunch. Our lives. Our love and our loyalty and our longings to him. Hey, hey, you ready? Let me show you this application. My job is to give Jesus my marriage. Uh, to give Jesus my, my kids, my family. I mean, my job is to give Jesus my church, my hopes, my, my dreams, even the broken one. My, my job is to give him my mess and my failures, my struggles, my insecurities. You ready? Let me put that in a little more, better light for this sermon. You ready? My job is to give Jesus my too little and my not enough. And watch him do something incredible with it. Like he did in John chapter 6. To trust him to do as Ephesians 3.20 would share with us. To do the exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Man, I think of this miracle and you know what I think? Man, we truly don't get the gravity of what took place. The gospel writers did. In fact, outside of the, the resurrection of Jesus, this is the only other miracle that's in all four Gospels. Man, this made an impact on them. But I think for some reason it's lost its luster to us today. I was on Twitter the other day, and I saw this account. And, and watch this, you ready? I prayed over my eight-count Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets, then opened the box and found 12 nuggets. This is my testimony. Hey, listen, man, that's good. That's pretty cool when God does that. But what Jesus did here is exponentially more. Consider this. This miracle was done with more people and with more partakers than any other miracle Jesus did. The people who witnessed the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, were not just watching. They were participating in what was taking place. They were eating the miracle. This miracle wasn't a restorative miracle like we see when, when Jesus healed the official son or he restored that paralyzed man again to where he could walk. This was not necessarily a transformative miracle like changing water to wine, but I'm gonna tell you something. This is an innovative miracle because what we watch Jesus do is he creates something from nothing. Nowhere in the scripture or in technology do we find that he clones the fish and the bread. He does what in Latin is called ex nihilo, meaning something out of nothing. It's what we use to describe creation, where God created everything out of nothing. And here he is, God in the flesh. When there wasn't enough bread and there wasn't enough fish, in his power, in his might, he created them from absolutely nothing. And incredible. Hey, isn't it amazing what Jesus can do with a little boy's Jewish lunchable? Isn't it amazing that little as much when God is in it.
I know we've talked about a lot about this little boy. We've talked a whole lot about his lunch. But you know, there's another lesson I learned from him and his lunchable. You ready? And that's lunchable lesson number three. The little boy was not the focus of the text. He was the vessel. The focus of this text is Christ and his power and his might, his compassion for the people. But thank God for a little boy who was willing to be used as the vessel that Jesus used that day. Hey, Christian, can I remind you of something? You aren't the focus, but you sure can be the vessel. How much difference would it make in our marriages if husbands, we showed up in the marriage and said, you know what, I don't have to be the focus, but I will be the vessel God uses to bless my wife. Wives, how much different would your marriage look if you weren't the focus? You were merely the vessel that God used to bless your husband. How about in our parenting? If it wasn't all about me and I wasn't the focus, and yet I took serious the calling of God to be the vessel by which I bless my kids and I point them to Jesus. I'll learn what it is to be a pretty good dad then. How about in your relationships? No matter what they look like, if you step back and you, you were no longer the focus, but you were the vessel. How about when you go to work? How about your work ethic? The blessing you can be to your business. How about a school? If we decided as a church like this little boy, hey, I may not be the focus, but I'm going to be the vessel that God's going to use to bless other people and to show people Jesus. Church, don't you be the focus. Be the vessel. And watch the scripture plays out. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, I just want to say this looks like a glorified buffet, and I'm so happy. Here in scripture, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. There's so much that there's broken pieces of bread all over. Let nothing be wasted, Jesus said. So they gathered them, and watch this, and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Hey, can we turn our attention back to Andrew and Philip real quick? Philip, we ain't got the money. Andrew, we don't have the stock. I wonder if these 12 baskets were left over for them. Like Jesus was saying, hey, Andrew and Philip, man, I'm going to answer your faithless questions with 12 basketfuls of bread because I love you. And I want you to see that when there isn't enough money and there isn't enough food, I am still enough. Hey, church, when there isn't enough money, there isn't enough food, when all you have is too little and not enough, be reminded in John chapter 6 that Jesus is still enough. He's still enough. Something interesting about the text that I, I wrote out as I was studying this week doesn't have a whole lot to do with the text and it's more me inferring than anything else. But what amazes me is how Jesus treated the bread. In Jesus' day, 
bread was treated with great respect and many rules existed to preserve the reverence of bread. Any crumbs of bread left over that were bigger than, a, than an olive, that bread was to be preserved, gathered, and never simply discarded. Bread was never to be cut, always to be broken. I love me some bread. Anybody else just love bread? And I love every bread I've ever met, except for Ezekiel bread. That's just terrible. But everything else, man, it's really good bread. Ezekiel bread's Christian bread, and sometimes it's terrible. Anyway, I love bread. But here's what caught me about the text. I love that Jesus saw value in broken pieces of bread laying on the ground. And he refused to throw them away. I'm really thankful that Jesus doesn't throw us away because of our broken pieces. But he still sees value in us. And he saw value in the people on the hillside that day after the people saw the sign. And what is part of the culmination, all the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And so in a moment, I'm going to share a story with you. But before I do, as we kind of head towards the closing here, can I remind you of three lunchable lessons that we learned from John chapter 6? And here's the first one. You ready? It doesn't matter how little or how much you have. What matters is how much of it are you going to give to Jesus? Here's the second. Your job is not to feed or save the world. Your job is giving Jesus your lunch. Giving Jesus your lunch. And here's the third. You are not the focus. You are the vessel. You are not the focus. But you are the vessel. And I want to stop and ask one simple question of the text, and that is this. If Jesus can use a little boy's Jewish lunchable to accomplish all that he did in John chapter 6, how much more can he do with you? With your lunch, with your life, with your love, with your loyalty, with your longings, how much more can he do with you? I want to close with a picture of a guy you don't know. <laughs> he was born in the early 1900s. His name... William, he was a smart boy. But even more so, people saw this young man and they knew his last name was Borden. And they knew this, that just by being born into his family, he would inherit the mining company that bore his family's name. And he was not only wealthy from the day he was born, his success was already charted out for him. He graduated in Pennsylvania from a school that was known for graduating students into Princeton University. But before he went on into college, his parents gifted him with a year's worth of travel around the world. He would go see faraway places and lands. But something happened when he was out there. Being saved as a young boy... He, wound, he went out to the nations of the world and he saw people who were hungry and thirsty. People who were hurting and people who were, who were lost. And wouldn't you know that, that on that trip, God would call young William to be a missionary. 
Can you imagine how that letter was written back home to his family? As he would share with his wealthy father and mother, listen, I, I, I'm going to give all my fortune away, and I, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a missionary for Christ in these lands that need Jesus, who are desperate for Jesus. He came back. He went to Princeton Theological Seminary. When his ministry preparation was done, he boarded a ship to Asia to serve among Muslims in China's Gansu province. Along the way, he stopped in Cairo, Egypt. It's fun, just on the way. Well, hey, let's stop in Cairo, Egypt, you know? And you know what he did there? He began to study Islam and Arabic language so that he could better present the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims in China. As he studied there, he became very sick. Less than a month after arriving, at the age of 25, he died of spinal meningitis. Many looked at his death as a tragedy. His friends had said, hey, if you go for the mission field, man, you're throwing your life away. His parents, listen, man, there's greater glory not going on the mission field. And yet he did and he died. He walked away from his fortune so that he could take the gospel of Jesus to the nations of the world. Most regarded his death as a tragedy. However, God took the tragedy and he did something incredible with it. He multiplied his efforts. When men and women, and especially young people, read of his story in the newspapers, these young people left everything they had and they left for the mission field to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to different people. When young William died, they grabbed hold of his Bible. And it's rumored that in the margins of his Bible... In the toughest days of his life, he'd write some phrases down in the margins. And they found him. When he was wrestling with this call to ministry, this desire to be a missionary, and his father's heavy disapproval, he wrote this in the margins of his Bible. No reserves, meaning this. And I'm holding nothing back. And I'm going all in. Toward the end of his time at his college, where he started a Bible study attended by three quarters of the school's student population, he wrote down in the margins of his Bible, no retreats, meaning this, man, I'm not turning back from what Jesus has called me to. And as he lay dying in a hospital in Cairo, Egypt, he wrote in the margins of his Bible, no regrets. No regrets. Can I sum up what happened in William's life in light of today's story? You know what William did? Like that little boy in John chapter 6, William came to Jesus and said, Jesus, here's my lunch. Not just some of it, but all of it. Hey, Jesus, here's my life. Here's my love. Here's my loyalty. Here's my, my longings, Jesus. I give you all my lunch, and you use it however you want. I think of William, and I think of how he was able to die with no reserves. 
And he was all in with no retreating, never going back, and no regrets. You know how he was able to die like that? You ready? Because he gave Jesus his lunch. And my prayer is, is that when you and I lay on our deathbed in our Cairo, Egypt, that we're able to lay there and with truth and with the affirmation of our loved ones, you and I are able to lay there and say, you know what, I had no reserves. I held nothing back. I kept none of my lunch from myself. I gave it all to him. And you know what? In my life, there was no retreat. There was no going back to the man I once was. There was no going back on what Jesus had called me to do. And when we lay there in our Cairo, Egypt, and on our deathbed, my prayer is, is that we can lay there with no regret. Why? Because like a little boy in his Jewish Lunchable, we gave Jesus our lunch and our life, our love and our loyalty and our longing. So church, the challenge is simple. Picnic with Jesus every day and give him your lunch. Let's pray together, can we? As we pray together, today's message is full of corny points, (laughs) lunchable lessons, They don't teach you that in seminary, I know. But I pray that in the text, you see the incredible. It doesn't matter how little you have or how much you have. What matters is how much of it are you going to give to Jesus? We come to the realization, hey guys, listen, and we can't feed the whole world and we can't save the whole world. That was never really our job anyway. Our job was just simply to give Jesus our lunch. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.